Local support for This Is Our Hawaii comes from Best Press, a Honolulu publishing company developing storytelling and educational resources for Hawaii and Oceania through language, literature, history, and culture for all ages. Hey listeners, at the start of our show today, you'll hear audio from the 911 calls that were made on the day the fire broke out in Lahaina. If you'd like to skip that, you can jump ahead to about minute three of the podcast, and we'll meet you there. Oko mako I'm Russell Subiono. You're listening to This Is Our Hawaii. It's been a while. When you last heard from us over the summer, we were gearing up for the finale of our show, talking about these big questions. What is the legacy of large land ownership in Hawaii? How do we steward the land so that it takes care of the people? What will Hawaii look like if locals can't make a life here and we're forced to move? And after August 8th, after the fire in Lahaina, these questions started to feel a lot more real. And the answers seemed way more urgent in a way we honestly weren't prepared for. Um, okay. On Front Street and Baker and Maui, it's uh, the whole roof is on fire. We are caught in massive traffic and we're covered in um, ashes and embers and there's a lot of people honking and trying to get out of the road. In the backyard, now we go front yard to the neighbor. Okay, so leave. You need to leave. I think the mistrust was there from the moment the disaster happened, right? For generations, you have continued to build the barriers higher for our people to stay stuck. Immediately after the no response. So that you can continue to steal our water, our land, and the mana of our people. What's to say it's not going to happen again? So we hit pause. My producer, Savannah harriman Pote and I went back to our day jobs here at Hawaii Public Radio. We covered the fires. And like everyone else, we tried to make sense of what was going on. The story we have for you today draws from that coverage, as well as from the work that our amazing colleagues have been doing these last couple of months, and most importantly, from conversations that Maui community members took the time to have with us amid unbelievably difficult circumstances. Mahalo to everyone who has made space for us and for this show. Here we go. Hey, Savannah. Hey. Good to be back in studio. Yeah, it is. I feel like over the summer I was seeing you every day, and then after the fires, we just both started running in different directions. Yeah, so I've been mainly talking to Maui and Lahaina residents, people who lost jobs and homes, uh, beloved places, historical places, really just all the things that tied their community together. And what I found in those conversations is that there was this initial chaos and heartbreak of the disaster, right? Right. But now, three months later, people are in the middle of this new nightmare, the recovery process. The process is daunting. It's a lot of paperwork. It's consistent paperwork all the way around. Everyone asks for paperwork. So that's Kukui Keahi. She's the operations manager for Kako'o Maui, one of the resource hubs set up to help people navigate this process she says a big part of the job is just meeting people where they're at. And they come in flustered and stacks of papers and I don't know what I need. I don't know what to do. And it's just like, Auntie, you're okay. We'll breathe. No, no, I'm like, no, you'll breathe. 
Go grab a water, grab a coffee. We're not going anywhere. We'll sit right here. I will wait for you. Take your time. Kukui understands how important it is to acknowledge these feelings because she's going through it herself. She lost her home in Lahaina during the fire. And so I was fortunate enough to not be on that side of the island when it happened. I was in Wailuku. And so because we couldn't go back, when FEMA opened up, I applied. When Red Cross opened, I applied. You know, every I was on, in town with service. So I was one of the first ones. In fact, the gentleman that I spoke to with FEMA, he said I was one of the first ones that were interviewed um, for our, our case, our um, disaster. And so I kind of went through the process very early on. Kukui is helping her community figure out how to move forward, including several members of her own family. And when I spoke to her a few weeks ago, she said there were still people who are just starting the recovery process, which makes sense. Lahaina residents have been grappling with the loss of their homes, where to send their kids to school, the death of loved ones. All the bureaucratic details, disaster assistance claims with FEMA, loans with the SBA, that all could take a backseat. We don't even have our lives together at the moment. And the people who are supposed to be there to, to help us, especially FEMA, Red Cross, and the fake state of Hawaii are culturally um, insensitive. Have you sat- And now they've got to rely on those same authorities for help. We are tired of asking, tired of being pushed aside, tired of the continued lack of support. Is, is, there, is there a sense of mistrust amongst the people who are asking for help, mistrust of the government assistance? Um, I think the mistrust was there from the moment the disaster happened, right? There's this real sense among people on Maui that it was community members, not government officials, county, state, or federal, that came to Lahaina's aid. The immediately after the no response from what people are thinking, they're not getting help. Uh, social media plays a huge role in what people assume or think or what they saw, what they didn't see. Okay, it's, it's interesting that she brings up social media because that was a deep, deep rabbit hole that I fell into after the fire. I, like everyone, was just constantly on social media, you know, kind of, kind of for work, but mostly because I just couldn't stop. Me too. And honestly, some of the best information about the disaster, where to get food, what areas were safe, whether or not you could drink the water— that was all being put out on social media by grassroots organizations. But there was also just this like rampant spread of misinformation. Right. Some of it was obvious, but there were a few that really made me do a double take. And one was this idea that if you applied for disaster assistance, the Federal Emergency Management Agency could seize land through something called imminent domain. Did you see this one? I did, yeah. I think I saw it on some of my channels, and I also think I saw some people refuting it. This rumor had a real moment. It was on Instagram and TikTok. We hear about FEMA and how people are talking about how FEMA can take their property. I'm not going to touch too much on that besides to say, go and read the Stafford app. People were referencing it in county council meetings. We're wondering what's on those documents for FEMA. You know, and I'm like, I don't know what's on the documents myself. And my cousins are asking me what should be signed, what shouldn't be signed. I said, I haven't seen any. I even had a few people texting me directly about it. And when I first saw it, I, I honestly wasn't sure what to make of it. So I started asking around. And what I found was that eminent domain has a complicated legacy in Hawaii one that's interwoven with large land ownership and affordable housing. This rumor speaks directly 
to a crisis of trust in our community, one that existed long before the fire destroyed Lahaina. So what exactly do we mean when we say eminent domain? Yikes, I didn't, uh, I didn't study before I came here. It's just like, sorry, this is, uh, you're getting it uh, w- without any preparation. That's Maui attorney Lance Collins, who I absolutely put on the spot with that same question. Imminent domain is laid out in full in the Constitution, but boiled down, Lance says. It's the power of the government to take property for some use. Specifically, a public use. So the classic way to think about eminent domain is that the government wants to build a public road, but you, a private citizen, own the land that they want to build on. So the government can claim eminent domain and take your property. Wait, they just take it? Theoretically, at least, uh, the government can only take private property uh, for a public purpose by providing just compensation. They have to pay you whatever the court decides is fair market value for your property. We'll get into a little bit more about how that works, but this is what you need to know right now. If you have land that the government wants for a public purpose and you refuse to sell outright, the government can take it anyway. That sounds like it could become an excuse for a land grab. Mm. And who decides what's a public purpose anyway? Especially when residents don't trust how the government is handling this disaster people hear this rumor, this term eminent domain, and start to panic. I think you're right. I think the idea that FEMA has this power of eminent domain taps into some very real fears that people have right now. But to be clear, this rumor is entirely false. We cannot take your land at all. We are not authorized to do that. That's Zella Campbell with FEMA. Whatever you guys would like to set up, you got the whole room. She has what I think is just a a fascinating job. Right now, she's working as a joint information manager responding to the fires on Maui. But full-time, I actually work in our headquarters office in D.C. And so I used to be a part of our web team. So within FEMA, it's this team's job to track all of the rumors that bubble up during a disaster. Our rumors may come from social media posts that we see online, from our social listening reports that we're reviewing as we're reviewing the conversations that survivors are saying. Um, We may also get rumors that may come from state and local and federal It's good to know that FEMA is doom scrolling along with the rest of us. Right, but whereas you and I do it to make ourselves miserable, this has become a really important part of FEMA's response strategy. Zella says the implications of all this misinformation swirling around can be super serious. If I'm constantly hearing these rumors, I might be hesitant as a survivor to want to apply for assistance. The fires are already an overwhelming situation, right? And then survivors are dealing with this onslaught of information all of the time. You've just survived a disaster, something you never thought would happen to you. So you probably have a whole new context for what is and isn't possible. Yeah, something that you might have previously dismissed, like the idea that If you apply for disaster assistance, you could have your land taken away. That might sound just a little more believable, which is the exact opposite of what FEMA wants. So when a rumor feels particularly harmful, they address it. If you go type in FEMA and eminent domain into Google, this page is one of the first things to come up. Our rumor control page. The rumor control page. It's essentially an FAQ page for rumors. 
And after the Maui fires, FEMA made a special page just for Hawaii. On it, you'll find responses debunking rumors like, you have to pay a FEMA inspector to come to your property, or, or crowdfunding makes you ineligible for disaster assistance. And of course, the one that we are all familiar with of just the fear that the government will come in and take your land. Can you say more about that last one? <laughs> yes, I know that was a big one for you. Of course, of course. So we do not have the authorization to take land from anyone. Um, and so we're not sure where that rumor came from. But there was this moment in the beginning of the response where it just seemed like this rumor was everywhere. Kukui actually mentioned it in our conversation. I'm not going to lie. There, you know, when this all started and I heard all the, I'll, I'll use FEMA, for example. Oh, they're going to steal your land. They're going to steal everything. You're going to have to pay them back. First thing I did before we even started my interview, started my case before he took anything. I, I asked him every single question I could ask. I think I called five times before anything just to be like, I need to confirm this. Uh, for, for just for clarification, were, mm-hmm. were you concerned that FEMA was going to potentially take your land? Uh, not mine per se. So I was, I am a gen, I'm over nine generations from Lahaina and everyone in my family, but one person, one family member lost their home. I was renting at the time. Um, but I was worried about the rest of my family. So I was the first one I got the call. So I asked all the questions so that I could help my family. We have quite a few generational lots in Lahaina still that are no, you know, lost the properties were burned. So Kukui's family has has generational land in Lahaina. Yes. I mean, that's pretty remarkable when you consider the history of private land ownership in Hawaii and and how rare it is for families to be able to hold on to that land. And when you consider that much of the land in Lahaina is beachfront or near the beach or has an ocean view, Hmm. it's not a far leap to think that predatory investors have already started sharpening their claws since the disaster which creates this atmosphere of fear. And people see all the million-dollar homes and luxury resorts along the coastlines of many of our islands, and they worry that that might happen in Lahaina. And FEMA may seem like one more person waiting in line to scoop up that property. Some of my family lots are prime real estate on French Street, right on the water. You know, like, I'll be damned if someone's going to take my family land that that was where I grew up. Now... Kukui strikes me as a really level-headed person. You'd have to be to do her job. But you can hear the emotion in her voice when she talks about this idea of her family losing their lands. That emotion, that fear, has got to be shaping the way people are seeing the world right now. If you feel like you're one wrong move away from losing everything, you're going to be on high alert for threats, or even just for things that you perceive as threats. And that might cause you to buy into misinformation like this. Misinformation is something we encounter a lot in our work, right? But I had never interacted with it in quite this way. And when I was talking to Lance, he really reframed it for me. When you have individuals who have no power and they are trying to make sense of something that's very complicated and then they try to close it in a way that makes it intelligible. I don't really see that as misinformation. Lance has done a lot of work with Kuleana lands, and he's worked with people who have been impacted by the Lahaina fire and the 2018 fires during Hurricane Lane. So he's familiar with the way that these fears can manifest and distort reality. Right. I might lose my land becomes 
FEMA is going to take my land from me. And that's false. We know that FEMA does not have that power. But Lance says that we need to recognize that the fear behind that rumor is valid. So the question becomes, how do we respond to that? Just telling someone that something they believe isn't real, like labeling it as fake news and saying, oh, don't worry about it, that's not effective. Even FEMA knows that's not effective. When you look at a rumor, do you think that saying this is untrue is enough to take away the power of that rumor? No. And to be clear, like we will never just respond and say this is not true. Like we are always going to, you know, we may start off and say this is not true, but we are going to provide a clear response on the facts up towards the rumor that we are addressing. But we know that rumors are going to continue and sometimes, you know, they go away and sometimes they don't. Right. Simply saying a rumor is false, even explaining in detail why it's false, often isn't enough. And this is a familiar problem, right? Like, think of how easy our jobs would have been as journalists during COVID if we could have just pointed out misinformation and said, this isn't true. And then listeners would have been like, oh, good, good to know. I guess I'll just just stop believing in that then. (laughs) So it's it's not an information problem. It's a relationship problem. Mm. It's trust. I think the basic issue here is that people don't trust the media. They don't trust us when we tell them that information is untrue. That's how we got to this point, right? An erosion of trust between the state, the federal government, the media, and the community that existed long before this disaster. And any solution to that is going to take time because relationships take time. I agree. But meanwhile, there's real harm for community members who are on their own trying to figure out who to trust right now. The danger for somebody who has an inaccurate understanding of what's going on is that they will possibly put up the wrong defense and completely be exposed to what the real dangers are. You know, if you think FEMA is going to take your land away, uh, it's not going to be FEMA. Coming up, land grabs, wealthy people, and the Supreme Court. This goes all the way to the top after the break. Local support for This Is Our Hawaii comes from Best Press, a Honolulu publishing company developing storytelling and educational resources for Hawaii and Oceania through language, literature, history, and culture for all ages. Oko mako Hawaii keia. This is our Hawaii. I'm Russell Subiono, here with Savannah Harriman-Pote, who is just about to explain how eminent domain differs from a land grab. Okay, it is different. It is different, I promise. Earlier, when I gave you the definition for eminent domain, it had a couple of key parts. Do you remember what those were? The government can take your land. Yes, that is, that is the big one. But the limitations are this. The government can take your land for a public purpose with just compensation. Those two terms are the guardrails that protect private citizens from unfair government land seizure, supposedly. Supposedly? Well, there's wiggle room in how you interpret both public purpose and just compensation. And certain people would say that that wiggle room has allowed for a pretty serious misuse of eminent domain. I called up Thomas Mitchell, a professor at Boston College Law School, who has dedicated pretty much his whole career to documenting these types of abuses. 
my interest in looking at eminent domain. Um, it was as part of this effort of looking at this group of property laws um, that have had a devastating impact on Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. When you're considering that these range of different avenues or tools that have been used to dispossess people of land, where does eminent domain rank? If, if it's not at the top, it's in the top two. Now, Thomas has a couple of reasons for making that argument. One, eminent domain often impacts whole communities. There's been a kind of reckoning going on on the continent about how a lot of government infrastructure projects, think big multi-lane highways, were built through Black and Latino neighborhoods. In some instances, the government was able to get that land and essentially wipe out those communities through eminent domain. And then there's the issue of just compensation. You have a constitutional right to get fair market value. And the question is, does that happen? Thomas says no. First off, people who are wealthy tend to get above market value. They also have the ability to lawyer up and make it very expensive for the government to litigate an eminent domain case. On the other end of the scale, those who are low to moderate income people or low to moderate wealth people who own properties of relatively modest value, they often receive something substantially below the market value. And market value itself is a pretty narrow interpretation of what owning land can mean to someone. It simply looks at what the value the property would fetch if it was put up for sale on the open market. So what that doesn't take account of is if, if you have property that's been within a family for multiple generations, the types of family heritage value that is built up within a family in terms of their attachment to that property, if the property has other cultural or historical significance, that's not taken into account. The other thing that the government doesn't have to factor in, if they take your land, if they take your house, is where the hell are you supposed to go? If condemning their property and extinguishing their rights to it will result in them experiencing a substantial reduction in the quality of their housing, potentially even rendering them homeless, that doesn't get taken into account. And I think that's what's really at the heart of people's fears right now. Where are we going to go? Maui was in the middle of an affordable housing crisis before the fire. And for some people, this might bring up other times when they've been forced to leave, even Kukui. I grew up on a plantation camp till I was about 10. My grandfather was a heavy machine operator. The camp that we lived in was called Lahaina Pump. It was, or Waina'e Village was the proper name. And we lived there. So in Hawaii's sugarcane era in the mid-1850s, several of the plantations spread around Maui created plantation camps and provided rent-free housing to workers. Years later, the Pioneer Mill Company provided housing for its workers in Lahaina, and that's what Waina'e Village was. And we're talking about probably one of the most diverse workforces in the country at that time. Hawaiians, Filipinos, Japanese, and many other ethnicities, all living in community, all laying down roots in West Maui. But when Pioneer Mill started shutting down operations in the late 1990s, many workers had to move, sometimes out of houses that they've lived in for decades. Waina'e Village was one of the last camps to close. And all of a sudden, we had to get out. That is embedded in a lot of our, 
our family's minds and what's to say it's not going to happen again. Hearing how real it is to your family is, I, I think, is eye-opening. Things have things have been taken away from Hawaiians in the past, and you know, and and a lot of our fears, especially in the wake of a disaster, are real. You know, this yes. these these uh, these fears are real. When you look at how this is taking place on on the continent, there is that fear of displacement and this reoccurring issue of just compensation. But that's supposedly only one guardrail with eminent domain. The other is public use. And arguments on that have made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in uh, Hawaii Housing Authority against uh, Midkiff. Hawaii Housing Authority versus Midkiff, a case that started on Oahu and fundamentally changed the way we interpret public use in cases of eminent domain. Wait, I've never heard of this. Okay, I'll start you at the beginning. We talk all the time on this show about how expensive housing has gotten, right? Oh, God, yes. That sentiment is not new. At least on Oahu, folks have been trying to deal with that issue for years. And in the 60s, one of the problems was that the majority of land on the island was held by a small group of private landowners. So in 1967, the state legislature tried to address this issue by passing something called the Land Reform Act, which included this clever use of eminent domain. Here's how it works. The legislature set up a system under which people who lease their homes on private land can petition the state, specifically the Hawaii Housing Authority, to take that land through eminent domain. Then the housing authority sells it back to the homeowner. So I own a house on leased land. You're the state. You seize the property from the current owner, then sell it back to me so that I own the land under my house? Exactly. And this was viewed as a super progressive move at the time. The state was actively trying to combat this concentration of land ownership among just a few people. But critics were like, wait, you're taking land from one private party just to sell it back to another private party? How is that for public use? That was the case against the state, which got appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The attorney who was arguing against the legality of the Land Reform Act, Clinton Ashford, said its interpretation of eminent domain was just way out of bounds. If the statute is validated by this court, it will be the same as writing the public use requirement out of the Constitution. But the state, represented by this hotshot out-of-town attorney, Lawrence Tribe, said, hang on, this is absolutely for public use. We're trying to create more affordable housing. And the legislature was therefore totally within its right to claim eminent domain. Here one must remember that the top three private owners uh, own 40% of the privately held land on Oahu. The top 12 own 80% when a small handful of owners own an enormous percentage of the relevant resource, one has a problem. I don't know, it's kind of compelling. Maybe a little bit of a backdoor solution, but at least they were trying to do something. The justices also thought it was compelling. One of the justices, Byron White, thought that this so obviously fit within the bounds of public use that he questioned why the case was even being heard at all. What's, what's wrong with, with spreading the ownership of residential property as a public purpose? I, I don't have any quarrel with that as a public, as a public purpose. But well, why isn't the case over then? So which way did the case go? The justices ruled unanimously in favor of the state. The Hawaii Housing Authority was given license to use eminent domain to try to break up this concentrated ownership. 
the Land Reform Act was seen as a big win for affordable housing. And I'm pleased to say now that everyone on Oahu is able to afford a home. <laughs> oh, funny, but 100% untrue. Yeah, obviously the Land Reform Act did not work out that way at all. So all it really did was permit wealthy or semi-wealthy or upper-middle-class folks who had houses on Bishop Estate land to force the sale of the land to them. That's David Callies, longtime law professor at the University of Hawaii. He specializes in property law, and he was teaching in Hawaii while the Land Reform Act was being contested in the courts. He says that the Land Reform Act wasn't some grand wealth redistribution scheme for a couple of reasons. First off, the Reform Act really only applied to one landowner, Bishop Estates, now Kamehameha Schools. They owned the vast majority, if not all, of the residential leaseholds on Oahu. And David says that the leaseholders who took advantage of the Land Reform Act were pretty much only homeowners in Hawaii and Kahala, most of whom were pretty well off to begin with. Basically, it was, you know, middle class and, and upper middle class folks, doctors, lawyers, businessmen, partners in this, partners in that, owners in business, vice presidents, and so forth. They were, there weren't a whole lot of blue collar workers in Hawaii Kai, you know, and there certainly weren't any in Wailaikala. So you can see the class that benefited, and it, it was clearly not the class that, that, that was sold to the legislature as what would be benefited if we passed this Land Reform Act. Hmm. So do you think that the, the legislature at the time genuinely intended to create an opportunity for more affordable housing? Or do you think that the Land Reform Act was written with those more privileged classes in these communities in mind? Pure speculation. I'm, I'm betting that most of the legislators thought that this was going to be land reform. When you, when you read it, it, it looks like it's, it's let's, let's give people an opportunity to own the land and not be tenants not looking too closely at the fact that the tenants were by and large pretty well off except for a few you know marginal folks like us that were in, in old cottages um what yeah i had no idea when i reached out to him but david callies and his wife got ownership of their property through the hawaii land reform act i think if i remember correctly i we purchased our leasehold for for forty fifty thousand dollars hmm. May, may I ask the value of it today? I would guess. We're not there. If I remember correctly, when we sold that property, it was sold for, you know, very close to a million dollars. Two, three million dollars today, the whole, the whole thing. After the Land Reform Act, housing prices didn't go down at all, mainly because when people owned the land outright, it became more valuable. So great deal for homeowners like David, but in general... Big misfire for affordable housing. In other words, by any, by any standard, a total failure. And then there's the standard that Hawaii Housing Authority versus Midkiff set about eminent domain and public use. Which pretty much destroyed any, any argument about public use, uh, unless the public use or purpose was an impossibility. In David's view, Hawaii Housing Authority versus Midkiff set up this precedent that basically gave the courts free reign on claiming eminent domain. Almost anything could now qualify as a public use. So you've taken out the just compensation and you've taken out the public use requirement and you're left with what? The government can seize your land? More or less. Okay, so putting aside the fact that I was totally right, <laughs> 
was fully right. <laughs> An eminent domain definitely sounds like it could be used for a land grab. What did the people you talked to say about how it's actually used? David Callies and Thomas Mitchell and Lance Collins all agreed that there is the potential for a government to abuse eminent domain. Well, not really just the potential, real instances of governments abusing eminent domain. But they also say that it has its place and it can be used to benefit communities. How? Well, for example, there are some cases of local governments using eminent domain in the wake of a disaster to relocate public hospitals or to construct barriers against flooding. You know, the type of things that are meant to keep people safe. And David Kelly said he could see a world in which eminent domain is part of Lahaina's recovery strategy to try to rebuild some of the structures that were destroyed. What we often do is sit around and do nothing. And, and things just get, it, it doesn't help anybody's problem. I could make a very good case for, for a redevelopment agency being formed. It can get something up extremely quickly. You can get something up from conception to building in two, three years. There ain't any question that government could take lots of land in Lahaina in, in order to develop slash redevelop it for the good of everybody. You said there's no question that the government could do that? I don't think there's any question at all. So it's not that eminent domain is an inherently unjust tool. The issue is whether or not you trust the government to use eminent domain for the benefit of the community. I think if the reaction to that initial rumor, that idea of the government taking land through eminent domain made anything clear, it's that the trust isn't there. So many people don't want the government to use this power. Well, legally, they wouldn't have a choice. So if Lahaina property owners are worried that they might be vulnerable to an application of eminent domain, what recourse do they have? None. Legally. If the government wants to take land in Lahaina, it can take land in Lahaina. I reached out to the state and county to see if eminent domain was on the table. The county didn't get back to us, and the governor's office said that there is, quote, currently no discussion or direction on this topic. So no insights there. But Lance says the reality is many people are going to lose land in Lahaina regardless of whether or not the state gets involved. Before, before you get to the part where you have government seizing land, there's this huge area of what's basically involuntary. People have just, they basically have to give up their land because they just can't afford to rebuild. Right, right. Folks in Lahaina are looking down the barrel of a three, five, seven year recovery process. How do they endure that? You know, if this recovery process drags out, do you think that there's enough resources for people to get through that? No. Today, no. Um, if our government plans, I think we can make it happen, but no. Getting people these resources, that's where we need to focus our attention right now. Lance agrees. One of his top priorities is getting some kind of foreclosure moratorium that would pause mortgage payments for Lahaina homeowners. Mortgage foreclosure moratorium is like a backstop, which says, okay, well, what we're not going to allow to have happen is we're not going to allow people to foreclose on these mortgages where people's houses have burned down for now. How would something like that happen? As a practical matter, the only thing that's preventing there from being a foreclosure moratorium is the governor. <laughs> 
uh, because that's the only, the governor is the one that can include it uh, in his emergency proclamation. So there is a foreclosure moratorium in place, but it only applies to federally backed loans. That was just extended until May. Lance wants to see a foreclosure moratorium passed at the state level that'll carry through the next three years so that homeowners don't always have their bats against these deadlines. And mortgage payments are just one of the hurdles that residents are facing right now. To be honest, it just seems like there's no good way out of this. Wait, hold on. We've only talked about two options. What do you mean? Well, I feel like we've set up this false binary where either every homeowner holds on to their land and rebuilds their house and Lahaina goes back to the way it was, or the government comes in and takes all of it. That's not the whole story. There's also a, I don't know how public they are right now this moment, but there is a group, there is a small group of people in Lahaina. Have you, uh, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Hilt, yeah. Hawaiian Land Trust. Yeah. So there's a, um, a small group of people in Lahaina who's trying to build basically a Lahaina land trust. Community ownership. That's another piece of the puzzle. I called up Olu Campbell. He's the president of Hilt. Hey, Russell. Hey, Olu, how's it? So Olu clarified that Hilt is considering ways they could be helpful, but have not made any decisions yet. And I wasn't the first person to ask. Thus far, we've been in nonstop conversations really since the day uh, the fire started. I mean, I started receiving calls from various people who are, um, who felt like, you know, there was going to be an issue revolving, involving um, loss of community ownership of lands and just asking, you know, myself and our organization if that's something that we would be interested in. When thinking about community ownership in Lahaina, Olu says it's complicated but possible. In fact, it was announced recently that a Lahaina native living on the Big Island is already laying down the necessary groundwork to establish the Lahaina Land Trust. But a land trust is just one version of what community ownership could look like. Co-ops, homeowners associations, nonprofits, they could all play a role. But Olu worries that if these options for land retention don't come online quickly, that window of opportunity is going to be missed. And he uses this expression that really clicks for me. You can only move at the speed of trust. That's what's determining Lahaina's path. Trust comes down to having a, a good relationship and to have a good relationship, you know, there needs to be some type of shared understanding, shared value set. Using a tool like Aina to create a, a community value set among, among everybody and really creating um, a culture of responsibility to each other, a respons responsibility to our place. Like, I think that's the, that needs to be the foundation and when people have a, you know, when I look at somebody else and I know that they have that community value set and they're, they have that mindset for our place and the well-being of, you know, the collective well-being of all of us, um, it's a lot easier for me to build trust with that person. That's baseline, taking care of the land and taking care of its people. And once again, we're back to trust. Olu saying, everyone needs to trust we're on the same page about how we're going to move forward. But if we don't figure that out and figure that out now, we won't just have lost the town, we'll lose the people who made the town what it is. Nagasako Delhi is a Japanese family that was rated number one Musubi on the island for I don't know how many years running. That was our staple for us and our kids. Like, you have a field trip? Oh, we're all, we're, we're all going to Nagasako to grab a couple Musubis and a drink for the kid to go, you know, 
that was our staple. You had RBN, which is a Filipino restaurant. That was hands down, you know, like you want to go to plate lunch and you're willing to wait a little bit extra. That's where we're going. Like, and then all their kids, we all went to school together, you know, like Lahaina's a very, very unique community. Like that's what makes us us. And that's what builds our community to what we are. And we come together and we're, we're one. What are your hopes for Lahaina? What do you hope will happen? What, what would be the ideal scenario for, for you and, and your family, for, for the people that, that, have, that are part of the Lahaina community? Restoring life back to it, you know, and that can come in different shapes, forms, and definitions for what it is and in people's own definitions. But, you know, I would love a generational family to be able to go home you know, and that's that includes all the different ethnicities. You have the Japanese who have been there three, four generations. The Filipinos have been there three, four generations. You, of course, you have the Hawaiians who, of course, are more deeply rooted. But that you know, go home, go home, and be able to thrive and actually live and uh, like afford to live. You know, as a child, it was so green, and everyone knew everyone. You knew your neighbors, and you could. It would take you two minutes to go from one side of town to the other, and now it takes you 28. You know, I don't... It's a loaded question. (laughs) I wanted to just go back to a thriving community. We talked to a handful of Lahaina residents who lost their homes in the fire, some with strong ties to the community and others with deep generational roots in its history. Their stories about the fire and the recovery process were diverse and tragic and harrowing and at times heartwarming. I wish we had limitless time to fit them all into this podcast. During those discussions, a couple of things stood out to me. The first was the idea that there won't be a singular path forward for restoring Lahaina, that it might take a collection of different ideas and paths to address such a varied and complex restoration. The second was how big their hearts are. Everyone still helping to pull each other up and still maintaining that everyone living in Lahaina, regardless of their ethnic identity or cultural heritage, has a say in its future. When you sweep away the politics and the labels, you can see just how strong the bonds are that continue to connect the people in the Lahaina community. After all they lost, that's the one thing that the fire couldn't touch. Oko mako Hawaii keia. This is our Hawaii. I'm Russell Subiono. Mahalo to everyone who talked story with us and everyone tuning in. This episode was written and produced by me and Savannah Harriman Pote. Casey Harlow helped to create our show. Maddie Bender provided crucial production help. This is Our Hawaii is produced with support from PRX and is made possible in part by a grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. Original music courtesy of Lelehua Lanzalati and additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Kristen Lipman designed our poppin' logo, and Krista Rados is the wizard that makes our graphics. Fact-checking for this episode was done by Sophia McCullough. Any part of this episode that sounds good is thanks to Anandev Banerjee. 
good chance you found out about our show in the first place thanks to the work of Silvio Flores and Liberty Peralta with help from Jason Ubai. Bill Dorman is the firm foundation on which our house stands. Jose Fajardo is that number one fan that motivates us to higher heights. And big thanks to Kukui Keahi, Uncle Keaumoku Kapu, Dusty Rainon, and Kawi and Shalia Keahi for sharing their deeply personal stories with us.